On January 12, 2018, an Indian rocket took off en route to space, carrying a cluster of 31 satellites into orbit. It was a successful mission, every probe deployed where it needed to be. The only problem? Four of those satellites didn't have permission to fly. The company that made them went rogue. Welcome to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson, and that was Lauren Grush, science reporter for The Verge, and the company that she's talking about is Swarm Technologies. They launched a few of their Space B nanosatellites into orbit on the 12th of January 2018, and they did this without the approval of the FCC. There are nearly 2,000 operational satellites right now orbiting Earth, and with many more companies now looking to launch tiny nanosatellites, Who's actually in control of making sure all these satellite companies don't start going rogue? Um, so we had been working closely with the FCC and a number of other government agencies. And um, the FCC had thought at the time that our satellites would be difficult to track. Uh, we had launched and wanted to launch uh, a smaller satellite, smaller than a 1U CubeSat. Um, we wanted to launch quarter U satellites. So these are about the size of, about the size of a sandwich. This is Ben Longmire the Chief Technology Officer and co-founder of Swarm Technologies, the company which launched their satellites without approval. And the cost of going rogue was a $900,000 US dollar fine. And we had taken radar data, radar measurements in an anechoic chamber at a, a government lab and submitted that data, which was very convincing they could be tracked. Long story short, uh, we were hopeful the paperwork would come through uh, you know, with the FCC. It didn't. Um, we launched and, you know, then the FCC took a, a difference of opinion for, you know, what, what was allowed, what was not allowed. Swarm is an American company and they have plans to build a constellation of Internet of Things satellites. Now, that so-called difference of opinion was actually a letter they received from the FCC one month before the launch in December of 2017. And that letter prohibited them from sending their Space B satellites into orbit. Swarm's space bees are really, really small. A 1U satellite is essentially a 10 centimeter cube, and Swarm wanted to launch 1 quarter U satellites. So they're really, really small. And that makes them difficult to track. And the FCC thought that raised serious concerns about whether they could be tracked past their useful life. But Swarm ignored the FCC's ruling and launched anyway. In hindsight, it was a mistake. You know, we're uh, regretful that we did it. Um, but, you know, in the end, uh, the, the quarter-U satellites are fully trackable and, um, you know, we're tracking them as we go now. So you might be asking yourself, how could an American company launch satellites without FCC approval? Well, they didn't actually launch their satellites with a US-based launch provider like SpaceX. What Swarm did was they went across to India to launch with the Indian Space Research Organization. And when the satellites were launched, there was no way of knowing that they were actually swarms, because the Indian Space Agency briefly listed them as two-way satellite communication and data relay devices from the United States, and there was no specific operating company listed against the devices. And this was the first time a commercial company had launched unauthorized satellites. So this company, Swarm, essentially went ahead and launched anyway. They went to India. uh, Probably, uh, in that case, the launch company didn't ask all the right questions and Swarm certainly didn't tell them that they were not licensed. 
and these satellites were launched, and that was a breach of American law. This is Stephen Freeland, a professor of international law at Western Sydney University and one of Australia's representatives at the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. It doesn't show the system has broken down. It shows that uh, one company acted badly and they've been fined by the American authorities quite significantly. Um, So the system works, but of course... Like any system of law, if somebody wants to break the law, they, they might do it. But by and, large, by and large, space works. Over 50 countries now have satellites in space, and private companies are quickly overtaking the industry. Elon Musk's SpaceX has gained approval from the FCC to deploy and operate a constellation of more than 7,000 satellites and Amazon are planning to launch their own constellation of more than 3,000 satellites. Then you've got companies like Fleet Space, who we've had on the show before, and OneWeb, and there are many, many other companies which are currently looking at creating their own constellations of satellites. People want to be in space, and they want to get there on the cheap. Traditionally, satellites have been relatively large, you know, the size of, a a combi van or or a car small car or something even a bit bigger but of course in the last five to ten years we've had miniaturization and so more and more companies are also developing much 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 smaller satellites which gives them the capability to launch more than one at the same time in various ways because the the way that launch technology is developed and the international system hasn't yet adopted to this idea of what might be classed as large or mega constellations of small satellites. It's on the agenda of the UN meetings. I've just come from those meetings. We've talked about it quite a lot. But we have to develop regimes to how to manage that. And that's not easy because we need to understand exactly what the risks are, what the hazards are, and what the benefits are. But it's something we need to deal with soon, given the stated plans of particularly US, but not only companies to, in the next four or five or six years, launch large numbers of satellites. And that gives rise to many, many difficult uh, legal questions, let alone technical questions, that we just have to sort out. Now, when it comes to space, the rules for putting objects into orbit are controlled by a bunch of international treaties. And because of that, the responsibility of actually policing those rules falls to the countries who actually signed the treaty. And treaties under principles of law give rise to rights and obligations. So if country Christopher and country Stephen have a bilateral treaty and we agree to do various things or to not do various things, we have rights and obligations as, as opposed to each other. If I breach that treaty, you have the right to take action against me under various in various ways under international law. So no different in space. These treaties give rise to binding obligations and rights of other states who are parties to those treaties to take action if one state breaches its obligations. Of course, it needs a political decision. You need the political will of country Christopher to actually exercise those rights because it's a big deal to, if you like, take another country to, let's say, the International Court of Justice to say you've breached a treaty. Um, but you have that right to do it. So the sanctions are there, the enforcement mechanisms are there, political will is required to do that. 
Another issue with space law is that Earth's orbit is actually a limited resource. Every satellite or object in orbit needs to have a certain amount of space around it, otherwise satellites can cause interference or potentially crash into each other. Satellites are tracked by radio frequency, things like radar, signal Doppler and laser reflectors, and they pinpoint the actual position of the satellite and the United Nations Specialised Agency in charge of figuring out these communication frequencies is the International Telecommunications Union. ITU works like a technical democracy. Countries, academics and commercial companies gather to negotiate and agree on the allocation of radio frequencies, and the frequency that your satellite is assigned can help determine your orbit in space. Dr Binley is a lecturer at the Law School at the University of Newcastle. And he says that this negotiation is really important because the ITU runs on a first-come, first-served model. That's why, you know, so many countries now are very keen to launch as many satellites as possible into the space, just, um, you know, for the purpose of occupying some of the existing orbits. As we've mentioned on the show before, back in 1957, the Soviet Union were the first country to send a man-made satellite into orbit, beating the United States into the space race. When Sputnik went up in 1957, we're in the midst of the Cold War, and um, the Soviets won that race to send the first human-made object into uh, orbit. Um, And if you read the New York Times on the 5th of October, Sputnik was the 4th of October, so if you read the New York Times on the 5th of October 1957, first paragraph will say, wow, Soviets have managed to do this great technological event. The rest of the article would be, wow, if they can do this, what else can they do? We better double and triple and quadruple our own efforts because space at that time, and even now, was seen really uh, with strategic and to a certain degree military eyes. And so Sputnik gave rise to um, a lot of activity both by the Soviets and uh, the United States in the midst of the Cold War. And of course, the rest of the international community, who at the time didn't have space capability, were of course concerned by this. The international community was worried about what space could potentially become if it were to really take on this military focus. And so on December 12, 1959, the United Nations created the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. And that P, peaceful, is really important. And uh, that was set up in 1958. So virtually immediately in response to Sputnik, it only met for the first time in the early 60s as um, things began to just change a little bit between uh, the United States and the Soviet Union and they were beginning to talk to each other on things. And it's met every year. It's got a number of subcommittees. One is legal, where I um, have the honour of representing Australia with as part of the Australian delegation. It's also got a scientific and technical subcommittee. And those subcommittees get together for two weeks at a time at various times uh, of the year in Vienna, which is where the UN on space, the UN space offices are, and talk about issues. And there are uh, 92 countries that are members of these committees plus another 20 or 30 observer countries, plus another 50 or so observer institutions. So it's a big deal. And really the interest um, in the legal and the scientific elements of space 
just continues to grow. Uh, that said, we're in a UN setting and, you know, politics obviously plays, plays its part. Over the next two decades, the committee created five fundamental space treaties. And after this break, we'll have a look at those treaties and the role they play in our current international space law. Welcome back to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson. And following the creation of the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, the committee sat down every year and started working on treaties. Over the next few decades, they created five fundamental space treaties which govern the use of space. Firstly, there's the Outer Space Treaty. It was adopted on the 10th of October 1967 and it governs the activities of states in the exploration and use of outer space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies. Then there's the Rescue Agreement, which was adopted by the General Assembly and entered into force on the 3rd of December 1968. It covers the rescue of astronauts, the return of astronauts, and the return of objects launched into space. Then there's the Liability Convention, which was adopted on the 1st of September 1972 and it covers international liability for damage caused by space objects. Then there's the Registration Convention. Adopted on the 15th of September 1976, it covers the registration of objects launched into space. And finally, the Moon Agreement, and that governs the activities of states on the Moon and other celestial bodies. And that was adopted on the 11th of July 1984. These treaties act as binding guidelines on the use of space. And because of these treaties, space usually is a neutral playing field. Space is for everyone, and countries seem to recognise this, mostly, even though the United States and Russia are not on the same foot when it comes to general politics on Earth. In space, they work together. So as Stephen Freeland said earlier, space works. For various ideological reasons... Um, really uh, reasons to do with the way we categorise space as a global commons, that is, in a sense, we all own it, we all have a stake in it, um, and yet it's a difficult place to access. And so um, only a handful of countries have been able historically, even though that's increasing, but only a handful of countries in relative terms have been able to garner space for benefits in So the less developed countries who were former colonies in the period um, uh, claim that, hey, that belongs to all of us. We need to have a system that ensures that we all benefit and we all share benefits. So that ideological argument came up, particularly in the 70s, as these new uh, former colonies became independent countries. And it meant that essentially there was an impasse uh, towards the end of the 1970s about reaching further binding arrangements. But of course, the technology has raced forward. The number of countries that have space capability has significantly increased. The committee uh, has 
in the absence of being able to come up with binding treaties, but technology moves on, more and more people are speaking about space, these ideological disagreements continue, politics changes, space becomes strategic, space has become increasingly commercial. It's a really complex area. But these treaties were never designed around a world where individual companies were sending huge constellations of satellites into space, or even trying to send humans to the moon and other planets. Updating the treaties themselves would be a really time-consuming and complicated process, but the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space are actively thinking about the impacts that commercial space activities have on the existing space laws. If you just step back a minute, in any area where technology races ahead, the law never keeps up. So think of bioethics and cloning and all of that. Think of robotics and the difficulties about um, artificial intelligence. So, uh, And it's the same in space or where the technology races. Indeed, law is often a reaction to technology um, after the event. Not always, but, but it often is. Um, and nor should, in my opinion, law be up to date all the time because the technology is always moving forward. You're never going to be um, completely up to date with everything that's happening. And it's very difficult, as I said before, this is not an excuse, but it's very difficult to regulate for the unknown. The law needs to react and needs to understand the technology and needs to find ways. Uh, It's never going to catch up but we need to have guidelines that make sense. You know, your listeners might think, well, he's just saying nothing there. It's never going to make sense. Uh, That's not true. As I said, uh, space works in a relatively orderly way, but it's true that the technology is now really racing ahead. You know, the last five or 10 years has seen technology move so quickly, and in the next five to 10 years, it will again. But it's the same on Earth. Look at your mobile phone. You know, five or ten years ago, your mobile phone was a completely different animal and it's raced ahead and the technology is struggling. Look at the Internet. You know, we the Internet is still not very well regulated. Um, So uh, this is not an excuse and it is an issue that we need to deal with. But um, all of these things are being discussed. It's a question of trying to work out the best way to move forward and that requires a detailed understanding it requires not just the lawyers in the room but it requires the politicians and the military people and the scientists and the humanists and the economists and a whole range of people in the room so that you get a holistic understanding of what we're trying to do as more and more companies and countries start utilizing space resources and having their own presence in our solar system Keeping space a neutral, war-free zone becomes increasingly difficult, and that was really brought to a head in March this year. India decided to destroy one of their satellites, and they did that with an anti-satellite weapon, or ASAT. Which caused uh, the production of, uh, it's estimated to be about 600 pieces of debris, dozens of which seem to have been shot up into higher orbits if you like, higher than the International Space Station and therefore potentially increase the risk. Activities like that, and they're not the only ones, but activities like that are bordering on the irresponsible. They are, in my opinion, in breach of the treaties. It's unlikely that anyone's actually going to 
sue them, if you like, utilizing their rights. But there's a lot of naming and shaming that goes on. There's a lot of uh, political discussion about it, and that itself has force. Um, but the most important, if you like, enforcement mechanism of space is, is one of logic. We all rely on space. Every country relies on space. Australia, every day in your life, Christopher, you will use space 30 times without even thinking about it. And it's not just the GPS in your phone. It's many, many other things. And when it comes to space, Stephen says that it's the big operators like the United States which stand to lose the most if any country or company goes rogue. Every country relies on space technology. Let's say for the United States, if they lost capability or access to certain space assets, GPS satellites or whatever, then not only would that compromise their national security interests, perhaps, but their sewerage system, their, their air, air communication system, all those things would, would be in jeopardy. And so the thing about space and the, and, and the thing that we need to take account is if there is irresponsible behavior down the track, if states or some states believe, let's create a domain of warfare in space. Let's start destroying satellites. The people who would, if you like, suffer the most, at least initially, although every country on Earth would would be at a disadvantage because of this, but those that would be at the greatest disadvantage are, in fact, the major countries because they have the most space assets, they rely on space the most, they are therefore the most vulnerable. Despite the fact that we have already seen rogue satellites and satellites being destroyed by nations like India, for the most part, space remains a very neutral playing field. But the real question is, how long will it stay like that? Space means so many things. You know, sure, it's strategic and it's national security and it's military and it's commercial. But it's also about culture and society and essentially the future of humanity and the way that it's benefited all levels of humanity, developing countries, developed countries, all of those voices. We need to understand space in a holistic way, not just listen to one or two loud voices that are saying, you know, this is a great place for us to have another fight, because it's not. It's it's anything but that. But there is, is cooperation and there's a general feeling that space is different because they all need it and they all rely on it. But, of course, somebody could do something stupid and that would have consequences. But my own feeling is that in the end, everybody realises that I'm going to have a loud voice, but I'm not necessarily going to throw the first punch or do anything like that. You've been listening to Moonshot, a production from Lawson Media. You can find out more about the show at our website, moonshot.audio. You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Moonshot Pod. This episode was hosted by me, Christopher Lawson, with research and scripting by Jasmine Mee Lee. Our artwork is by the talented Andrew Millist, and our theme music is from Breakmaster Cylinder. We're working on some stories right now about electric cars. If you've got an electric car, we'd love it if you can reach out and send us an email to moonshot at lawson.media. 
Thanks for listening, and I'll speak to you again soon.